Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hey guys, welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. It is Wednesday, February 2nd, 2022. Great day. It's Groundhog's Day. So for people who love oil prices, maybe we can just keep repeating this. Um, but it's 2-02-2022. So sure, lots of people want to get married today. Um, this is Petro's Podcast, episode 39. And we I am really honored to have a great guest today and my first private operator. Well, actually, I've had a private operator before, but the first CEO of a private company um, in the Permian Basin. So I'm super pumped. I have Ryan Keys with me with Triple Crown Resources. Um, if you don't know much about them or you've tried to look something up on them, you're not going to find much uh, because the, the website's limited, but uh, the information's great. I mean, I was pulling up some wells and we're going to talk about it. I met Ryan at a, at a Doug conference, um, so I'm super pumped to have him. Uh, and before I, I say hi to you, Ryan, and, and let you talk, I will, I'm going to timestamp this with, with prices. And, you know, about 20 minutes ago, WTI was 87.93. Uh, Brent was 89.26 and that gas was 541. And we can certainly talk about your, your viewpoints of the oil market and the, the global oil market, which I would love to hear. Um, but we did have an OPEC meeting and they did agree to, uh, continue with the barrel, the 400,000 barrel day increase, which most people don't think they'll hit. Uh, but oil prices are, are relatively steady. So with that, uh, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you. And I guess another little update from the day, Punxsutawney Phil did see his shadow. So maybe we'll get a six more weeks of, uh, of oil bull market. I don't, I don't know how that works. Yeah. Well, I I was at the, uh, I was at the, the rodeo, um, in the national Washington stock show in Denver and it was the the bull riding finals for the PBR. And they, they put up like a, a crappy little snowman and they were like, Instead of a, instead of a, um, you know, the Groundhog's Day, if the bull hits the snowman, you know, you'll, you'll have an early spring. And I was like, okay, we definitely had an early, we, do, we the bull definitely hit the snowman. So that was, that, that, that snowman was dead. Uh, yeah. So happy Groundhog's Day. Um, and uh, life must be feeling pretty good as a, as a private operator in Southern Midland. And you're, you've had some nice well additions this, this year, or in, I guess in mm-hmm. 2021, your production's up and I uh, know oil prices are way up. Definitely. Um, and maybe uh, we're at this point where it's starting to feel like it is too much of a good thing. Um, you know, when, when we start seeing, um, you know, oil have a good day. It's it's starting to get a little bit like, I right now would be a great time to, to just kind of chill out a little bit and stay in the mid eighties. Uh, would definitely take that. I think we'd preferred it. Um, at things have get you been too, listening to my podcast? It's like you're yeah. you're saying this. Yeah, I I think that's. Do you think your colleagues and peers feel the same way? Because I would say that you know when I talk to and I talk to a lot of executives, a lot of CEOs, and I tell a lot of my clients that I get anxious when everyone has like this bull thesis. And mm-hmm. I would say that the 99% of the CEOs in the business really think we're in a super cycle. And that makes me anxious because I don't think they're factoring in what if Saudi Arabia can consistently produce 12 million barrels per day? What if Russia can consistently produce 12 million barrels per day? By the way, I do believe both of them can. What if we consistently produce 12 million barrels per day? And what if we have a recession? And I think all those are very highly likely. And it, it's not that oil prices crash, but they, they could come down uh, from the levels that they're at. Oh, oh, definitely. Um, and, and yeah, the, the recession is there and we've got just ridiculous volatility, um, and, and whatever index you look at and, and, you know, there, there's the, 
you know, perma bears wherever you look, whether it's on, you know, Wall Street Journal or, or Twitter, there's some people, it's just, you know, perma bears. It's like, oh, the you know, market's going to crash tomorrow. At some point, they're going to be right. I mean, we, we've had, you know, a ridiculous run and, and you know, demand destruction via just a recession or, or correction. I mean, that, that's entirely possible. Um, economy's juiced, we're on steroids, but I mean, that, that's got to run out at some point. And, uh, you know, no, not as much uh, fiscal stimulus, um, to, to put our economy on steroids. Um, and then, you know, we, we've got the inflation thing going on and yeah, this is, this is, uh, this is a lot of unpredictable, um, just a lot of variables. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, uh, we'd rather actually have $75 a barrel than 120, uh, for, from our, uh, you know, business standpoint, it's, that, that's a, that's a nice middle ground, uh, to, uh, you know, make sure there isn't, um, you know, oil demand destruction yet, uh, the, the economy stays um, stays healthy. Um, and, um, you know, we've got one of the major themes and you've, you've talked about it uh, on your on your podcast before is just our the, the inflation. Um, our our uh, cost inputs have gone up substantially. It's usually a okay with, um, you know, with rising commodity prices, but the rate at which they're rising and we could speak candidly on this. Um, you know, I can speak candidly. We're you know, a private operator. Uh, we don't really have to to, to push a narrative. Um, they're going up. I, I don't know where these these uh, these reports are coming from. Where you know the uh, capex numbers uh, are 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 going to stay flat to to you know to going down maybe in 2022 versus 2021. I don't know how that's possible, um, but you know, may, maybe they're a lot more creative than I am. Uh, just literally today, um, as talking to our our um, SVP of. Uh, uh, of operations, cement. Everyone uses cement. You drill, drill a well. You need cement. That went up ten percent just in the last week. And w- one of the other things is um, you, you you drill a well, or or even just just uh, you know you, PDP. Uh, you you use a lot of diesel and oil and gas. That is one of our major costs. Is the energy we produce. So yes, we're getting more revenue, but costs go up because we're a huge consumer of diesel. Uh, gasoline and and natural gas to to run our compressors compressor stations and and you know everything else. So, well, um, I think that's a are- huge. I think that's a huge. And I, I want to keep talking about the inflation piece. And I don't I don't mean to cut you off, but I think the I, the 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 cement and diesel and being candid like that of saying ten percent increase. And I sort of just want to frame that a little bit and thinking. And I I know my these we're probably pushing. I'd say about one hundred fifty rigs. Um, Private operators and about 150 rigs actually for public operators. You guys have one rig running, correct? That is correct. Awesome. Well, that okay. So you have one rig running. So we have and we have over we have about 22 public companies running these 150 rigs, and then we've got over 50 private operators running these 150 rigs. So we have a ton of private operators running this. And I do think you're right that these public companies and I haven't I haven't got into um, you know listening to all the earnings calls just yet. I was listening to you know kind of. Uh, I think ConocoPhillips was out today. I just had, you know, Aaron Hunter on the podcast with ConocoPhillips. So we were talking about the public's perspective right before the earnings call. And I would say, I think the public's and, and not necessarily them, but other earnings calls, and the previous ones I've been listening to, um, Halliburton and Schlumberger, there's a bit of a, there's downplaying in the, in the inflation piece. And I think obviously they want to downplay that because, you know, they don't want to emphasize that for sure um, because prices are good and things look great. Um, and I know at least last quarter, there was a big trend and theme of, 
at strip, you know, and that always drove me a little crazy because yeah, strip prices were great. But then we, and I keep reminding people, we saw $62 oil about a month ago um, or just mm-hmm. over a month ago. So yes, we're at 87 and we've been touching the 89 and Brent's been above 90, but it is this uncomfortable territory where it's very geopolitically driven. Um, it's very risk. It, it, I mean, there's a lot of risk in the market um, and it's less, it's less sort of demand growth driven. And I think these inflationary pieces, which if you're listening to earnings call, I mean, Starbucks, People said it's not as big a deal, you know, but it they did have a 14% sales drop in China and they talked about oh, inflation wow. and the inability to get people, you know, their sales were okay in the US, but their inability to get people, you know, to work in the stores and the inflationary aspects were huge. And I think, you know, if people start, uh, you know, as, infl- as inflation bites, you know, those become, you know, that's a, that's an item that you, you don't buy every day for yourself. And so I think in the industry in particular, it just sort of makes me think of, we don't hear as candidly um, from these public operators of exactly what the inflation is. We hear about how they're going to offset that with efficiency gains and certainly longer laterals and, and speed and everything. But it does, I think, put a lot of pressure on, it does certainly put pressure on private operators. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure if you want to talk about your hedging profile or if you're allowed to. Um, but, you know, hedging, I think it is relevant for private operators. And I'm okay hearing, you know, six handles sound great to me um, because you can make money at that. It's a little bit harder with the inflationary piece. But then again, I mean, this is the why I kind of want to, you know, beat the dead horse on this inflation piece is because it gets into the, um, you know, how you actually work with service companies and, you know, what kind of pricing power do you have? And if you're smaller, I feel like collectively you guys can, you're doing a lot of damage, but it's harder as a tiny company to sort of just demand, you know, you're not locking things in, you know, necessarily frack spread for a long period of time might be a little more lumpy and that did change a lot during the covid period so i mean uh, with that branch i'll sort of let you just jump back in sorry about that yeah no i I mean uh, the the first thing uh one of the things you just mentioned was the um you know the inability to get people you know the okay starbucks and chat but yeah that's that's everywhere it's in the oil field too uh compared to last year um there's a lot of inexperience um, and those the, your wages have to rise to get people to come either come back. And a lot of people have said, you know, screw it. I'm never going back to oil and gas. That's it's too volatile. Um, so, you know, this is what volatility does. It, it, uh, you know, it creates these inefficiencies. So, um, you know, we, our, our service companies we, with whom we, we have, you know, really good relationships have had a lot of turnover, um, because that, you know, demand has, has, has just skyrocketed, uh, in the last 12 months. So, um, the, the people, um, you know, the average experience on a rig or on a frat crew or workover rig or whatever, uh, has gone down substantially. Um, and so there, that's actually another form, very sneaky form of, of, of inflation in, in our, yes. our, DNC, our, um, development budget. It's the raw materials. We already talked about that, but this one is performance driven. Like it, it's going to take an extra half a day or a day on average to, to drill, drill a well. It's just inefficiencies built in by the lack of people. We're spread too thin. Um, so, so that's, that's definitely hit us. And, and um, you know, we, we've tried to project that as much as we can, but when things are this volatile, it's, it's, um, it's very unpredictable. Yeah. And when you so, say that week, a week over week cement price increase, now is that reflective of, of one, are you, you're not, and I'm not familiar with how the contracting structure would work on if you're locking, if you can lock in cement prices, but what, you know, a, a big a 10% jump like that, is that because everybody's jumping up that activity and it's corresponding at the beginning of the year, you know, and, and also people are probably seeing the same thing, freaking out a little bit and just trying to get it locked in, or is it, um, it, you know, this just normal volatility? I mean, that, that does seem like a significant week over week jump. 
it, it is massive. Uh, I don't know particularly what caused this, but I, I would I would imagine um, it's people locking in supply, no longer running off the spot the spot market. Maybe there are a lot of folks locking in six, uh, you know, six twelve month uh, uh, contracts, and, and the suppliers saying, "Look, I mean, it's supply and demand. It's fair. Uh, they're they." We, we just physically can't buy cement at the same price we could a month ago. It's just not there at that price. So, And with that many private uh, operators running and gunning, it would make sense that maybe that that's yes. that snap. Yes, uh, it, it, exactly. And then you, know, you, you mentioned uh, you know, who's, who's the, the, the source of growth. I mean, certainly uh, you know, private operators. You've got uh, um, you know, Endeavor, uh, Mewburn, and, uh, and Colgate, and, and a few others, but they're just – um, that's, that's a big source of the growth, but at the other end of the, end of the spectrum, the, the biggest publics, you've got Chevron and Exxon growing like crazy. Um, Exxon just announced yesterday that they're going to grow, uh, their production out of the Permian basin by 25% this year. Uh, that is a stunning amount of growth and they're a big producer. Um, and they're, they're not doing it with as many rigs as, as they were running before COVID, uh, and, and either a Chevron, but. I mean, that, that's a stunning amount of growth and, and a lot more CapEx than they spent last year. So uh, you've got these kind of barbells at, at both end of the spectrum, the, the bigger privates and then, you know, the super majors. And the what will really make it go out of control is if the independents lose their discipline, not lose their discipline, but, you know, de- decide um, to you know, chase the, the value proposition of growth, which is starting to be rewarded. Uh, you know, once, once Exxon... Uh, you know, announced that they were they were growing a little bit. Um, their their stock went up. Okay, that's an incentive to grow. Um, and is that returning on mass for everyone? I I hope not. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, we'll we'll see what the what the big independents in, in the Permian Basin do. And if if they lose their their discipline, um, you know, all bets are off. It's, things are going to get really really crazy out there and real tight. Well, and that's that's super. That's a really fascinating thing. And I have I I like I said I I've been I did. ConocoPhillips and was catching up. I had a webinar this morning on on the glo- the energy crisis in in Europe with my with my old boss in the global gas center. Um, so that was fun. But um, the growth. So the fact that Exxon and Chevron are willing to increase output, right, and they're getting rewarded for it. I do think it's interesting because it's the timing of the market. So it's this massive pandering to investors that everyone's doing, and really. You should have, in many ways, some folks should have been increasing output last year. But if you're if you're public and you're you're not getting rewarded for it, um, then it makes sense. And if if Chevron and Exxon are getting rewarded for it, and the reason they're getting rewarded for it is because tech doesn't look so great. Um, we're just hearing Spotify and we're hearing you know PayPal and all these earnings don't look amazing. And every tech person is trying to you know make it sound you know like it's it's not the end of the world. Peloton's cry. You know all these companies are not doing great. This was not rocket science. These companies did well when you're all locked in your homes. Nobody wants to be locked in their homes anymore. They're not going to do the same. And you have rising interest rates and it's just going to flip. So, I mean, the actual shareholder or the the performance is saying that the market's saying, hey, oil and gas looks pretty good. It's a nice little inflationary hedge. Prices are going up. So I think it's a timing and you're right. It could be a very messy, perfect storm within the Permian from an activity standpoint. And I, I question on exactly what you, the, that production growth, because, you know, Exxon and Chevron have kept their rigs alarmingly flat and low. Um, and, I, you know, I was talking with Conoco last week and it was, you know, they went from 20 rigs to 10 rigs and have kept it, you know, steady at 10 rigs. However, they bought um, Concho resources and they bought Shell's Permian assets. So they're going to move 
they're going to be doing something with them, right? They're not just going to sit on it forever. And they've really beat the drum um, to the market of saying, no, 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 we're not going to grow. And and no, we, we're, we're all ESG friendly. And we've got this triple mandate. And we're into the Paris Accords for the 2050 net zero agreement. Um, but oh, by the way, we bought two big assets. Um, they're going to do something with those assets. And I think the same, you know, for Chevron and Exxon is that the Permian is a is a is a flex mode, right? They can actually move the needle on it and they can add production. And when you're getting pressure to pay for all this ESG stuff and you have to invest 2% of your CapEx at $90 oil into, you know, wind and solar, which doesn't return on the money um, and will increasingly return less on your money, you may you may try to produce a little more oil to pay for that. I just, that might be logical. Yep. Yeah, exactly. High, high margin can then maybe reinvest in low margin, but uh Anyway, that that <laughs> we get. Uh, you probably have had a lot of opinions over the last year about um, uh, you know the the super majors turning into, into energy companies and um, you know basically investing into what you know very very high valuations. I mean those uh, your renewables businesses and and assets being being valued at uh, some some really big multiples. And you know I guess that could still those multiples could still increase. And uh, but. It, it seems a little little uh, frothy. Um, it's, so. it's, fro- it's frothy and squishy. And I love that you've taken me completely off our, our roadmap of, of what we were going to talk about, which is great because it's it's actually, you bet you were more difficult to have as a guest than anyone because there wasn't much I could prep for <laughs> except for your production data. And I think for listeners, it's fantastic. So I love talking about this stuff and, and would love your input. Yeah. So I think that, that squishiness and that um, I, I personally do not think, and I don't know how many Petronas podcasts you've listened to, but I'm very much on the record for saying, no, it, it's crap. Um, and if you, I mean, you could have made the case a year ago that you might have gotten a little bit of return on, on some of these solar and wind projects, a little bit, and it was thin. And even then, you know, BP was getting hammered because they were paying uh, astronomical prices for, which they wouldn't disclose, um, for for just offshore acreage, uh, for offshore wind. And and then it, just like shale, you know, it's like, what did you pay for the acreage and can you deliver on it? Um, so, I mean, they were getting pressured then. And now I think the margins are thin and with inflation and got to beat the, it's not a dead horse, got to keep beating it because this is, the inflation piece is very real across the energy industry, across every industry, and it's very, very real in solar and wind and green tech. And nothing hits tech and green tech more than higher interest rates. And you have to have a political climate that's really willing. And this morning when I did this uh, uh, webinar with my with the Energy Policy Research Foundation and the Global Gas Center, it was on sort of the Texas Texas grid in California, um, and it was on the energy crisis in Europe. And I sort of mo- I moderated the panel on the energy crisis in Europe, and that it was a really fascinating discussion because this is you, you have many many pieces at play, and this inflationary piece and where the European Central Bank stands on inflation and interest rates and energy, um, and the energy transition is really really serious uh, because they want to look through the energy transition, they want to allow interest rates to rise, and they want uh, or uh, sorry keep interest rates low so they can allow the energy transition to happen. And, you know, they keep saying, and we heard somebody on the panel say, hey, Germans, uh, the the people in Germany are okay with these high prices. And I kind of call BS on that because I think at some point, you know, when they can't, and the European Central Bank is saying people aren't turning up their thermostats adequately because they can't afford it. So that to me tells me they're not exactly happy with the highest energy prices in the world. Um, And politics, at least here in the U.S., are going to come home to roost uh, come November and the next like a presidential election cycle. Sure, sure. And, and you know, th- this is this is one really such an interesting topic. But, you know, you, you people talk about your return on investment and, and you know, economic metrics, but th- th- there's an even simpler one, which is, 
you know, to, to produce energy, to create energy for our economy, we have to sink energy into creating it. And, and it's, it's just simple thermodynamics. It's, it's, uh, you know, a, a shale well in the, you know, Wolfkamp well, horizontal well in the Permian basin, uh, takes, you know, one unit of energy to create 20 or 30 units of energy over its entire life cycle. Uh, wind might be about, you know, 12 to one and solar is probably, you know, six or seven to one. So when, when you need to basically, you know, create the same amount of energy for society, for, for our standard of living, um, and most, a lot more of that has to go into actually producing the energy. And therefore there's, there's less energy to spread around to the rest of the economy. It's, it's like, um, you know, it, it, the analogy I'd you know, like to use is, you know, if, if you're, you know, hunter gatherer, uh, and we, we, we still have to play by the laws of physics and thermodynamics, uh, would you rather spend, um, an, an hour a day hunting a deer or, uh, 10 hours a day, you know, hunting little birds and rabbits and lizards? Uh, that's how much time is liberated if, if you put, you know, one hour a day to, to, to feeding your entire, you know, village or something versus, you know, 10 hours a day, just feeding yourself. You're one is wealthy, one is poor. Um, and it, it's, it's worrisome, uh, you going so fast, you have to have a wealthy society to achieve an energy transition. You've got to do it slowly. Uh, you know, otherwise you're going to introduce, you know, so many shocks. And I, I know you've said this all over the place, uh, you know, on your podcast, you know, numerous times, but this is, this is too fast. Uh, and this is coming in personally, like we, yeah, we, we do need an energy transition. It just has to be on the order of decades. Um, you know, maybe a century, uh, uh called but, a, an actual transition, not a, a we decided in evolution. Any and yes, that will we'll flip the switch. Um, that being said, I would, I guess, and those are great points and I appreciate that. Um, but can you, I mean, are you guys as a, um, as a, as a private entity? And I, I ask this because, you know, I mean, I work with a lot of private companies and, and private equity and in various entities, but I think it's great for listeners to actually hear, you know, are you guys on a executive level, on a board level? Are you guys thinking about these issues? Like, are you, are you talking about, you know, how people are investing, what the global macro looks like? You know, are you, are you taking this into account when you're putting the drill bit into the ground in, um, I'm going to press Erion County. Yes. Erion County. Um, and, and we, we definitely are. And there are, um, you know, some of these, some of these ESG initiatives, they're just so it's so polarizing, um, we, we really embrace, you know, a few of them because they make really good economic sense. Um, and it's just kind of a choice to, to, to view them as, as, you know, as projects. Um, so I've been, you know, pretty vocal in, 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 you know, various other, other forums about, um, you know, our capturing methane should be, should be profitable. And it, it has been for us. It, it's been, um, out of all of our projects last year, um, capturing our methane had the best return on investment, uh, and, and you know, second place wasn't even close. Um, we we spent about one hundred thirty thousand dollars all in uh, detecting and, and um, fixing our, our methane leaks, and from that one hundred thirty thousand dollar investment, we captured about one point five one point six million dollars of of additional uh, gas and natural gas liquids. Wow, um, and that's, that's a very good, fantastic ROI. that's a really good, a really good metric. And I think so many people we hear over and over about methane, methane's a good thing to capture anyway, but I think no one's put a dollar amount on my podcast of what they've spent and what they've actually gotten back. That's, that's awesome. That's a great number. Yeah. And you know, it's not really that we're, we're 
smarter or better at it. It's just like we just made it a priority and we're, we're viewing it. We made the choice to view it as as a profit center, as an opportunity and rank it amongst our other projects. So if you just apply old school you know, F&D cost, like the we're, we're, the, the cheapest gas and NGLs we can find, the cheapest hard, hydrocarbons we can find are leaks. Uh, let's fix those. And of course, that doesn't scale. When, when, once you fixed your leaks, yeah, you, you move on. But in the meantime, we've lowered our methane emissions by by about 90 percent. Um, now, can I just ask why that, you know, from that math, that, that easy math there of what it costs to actually reduce that methane and fix the leaks and how much money you got back on the NGL. So if you could repeat those numbers, why wasn't that done before? just wasn't on the radar, just wasn't thought to be done. And I grew up around the private business, so I'm kind of baiting you because I know that I, I think I know some answers, but I would love, I would love to know your perspective, why that wasn't done before. You know, there's a, one of the main reasons are the, um, we have regulation and guidelines from, from the EPA. Um, and, you know, it's, this is, uh, this is quite a way. Um, and we have these, Operators have had to disclose their their emissions and, and their carbon intensity uh, for for you know many years now, but it's it's through what what are called um, uh, emissions factors. It's basically just you 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 give in a spreadsheet you describe the type of equipment uh, you have um, and there are these emissions factors like for you know, pneumatic controllers and 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 everything else that it's it's a theoretical number. Um, so you describe your assets, put it in a spreadsheet, it spits out this methane intensity number. That's not actually measuring anything. So we went by that, by that number of what we were theoretically leaking per the EPA's recommendation, uh, we, we were negligible. We, we were one of the, um, as far as we could tell the best in the basin, uh, when, you know, we have, we have VRUs and, and, uh, you know, every, basically everything, uh, the EPA recommends uh, like we, we, we have, um, and so it's almost a perverse incentive. Uh, once we, we actually measured our leaks, we were, you know, 15, 20 times higher than, than what the EPA emissions factors were saying. And again, I, we, we can say this. I, I can say this because we're, we're a private operator. Uh, you know, a public probably can't say that, um, you know, because <laughs> their investors might freak out. But this is true for a lot of people. This is, this is true for a lot of operators. It's, it's out there and you can choose to. You know, look at the old emissions factors, but but it is the fixable. EPA will adopt is and is in the in the process of adopting new technology where you actually measure, and we're going to have within a year a satellite flying over the Permian Basin once a day, um, you know, basically disclosing everyone's. Uh, it's backed by the you know, Envir Environmental Defense Fund. Um, I'm sure it is. You know, basically making public this data. So this is something we all got to get ahead of. Right, but that it's fixable. And that's what I, I you know, I, I push you on. It's, it's, it's something that it's, methane links are fixable. Now, you know, how in which they go after CO, your CO2 footprint, that's a different story. And, and it's not that I don't want people to, to do this because the, these are fixable things. You do get a return on investment. It's a good thing to do. I just, uh, I get a little hesitant of, you know, it's a Pandora's box and it's sort of like opening up the, you know, if, especially when the Environmental Defense Fund um, is involved with it, involved with the EPA, then it's like, well, what's your next step? Once once you've done it, are they going to let you have a pass or are they going to go after something else to try to put you out of business? And I, I think that's important for the industry to recognize is that as leaders in the industry to make it clear, we're doing this because it makes sense and we'll do this. Um, and it makes good business sense, makes good economic sense. It's also the right thing to do 
but you're taking it a step too far if, you know, on the next levels. And I think leaders, uh, industry leaders do need to get ahead of that and make sure they're mm-hmm. clear on how far they can actually take this and that this production is, uh, it is really meaningful of producing stuff in the U.S., of having, mm-hmm. you know, not, you know, not sending the dollars abroad, keeping the crude here and using it here has a significantly lower CO2 footprint if indeed this is about CO2, um, which I've argued many times it's not. But I mean, I just think that's important to, to put in perspective. But awesome numbers and a very, very good perspective and really nice to hear from a private operator because you're right, we don't hear candidly from the publics what's actually happening on that side. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, the, I guess getting on, on the, the original question, which is, you know, the, there's these, there's certain ESG metrics which make all kinds of sense to be good at. And, uh, you know, the methane intensity is one, uh, you know, water recycling, another one. Uh, another one is just simply like just just uh, your recordable incidents. Let's just be let's just be <laughs> safe and and not have any injuries uh, on, on the you know out in the field. I mean, I, these are things that, that that everyone should want. Everyone on the planet should should want these. Everyone's aligned on wanting these things to happen. Uh, let's get let's just be good at them. And it's something we track. Um, and if we can stay ahead of the game, I mean that that's going to improve our our. Um, our ability to attract capital and ultimately, uh, you know, whenever that may happen, an, an exit and it might be a while before we exit. So um, it, it, it's it's important to a critical mass of investors uh, who, who do think, uh, you know, some of this stuff does matter and and, and it, it does. Um, so that those, you know, fo- focusing on the E part. That's, I think that's fantastic. Well, and I actually think you're probably focusing, if you're talking about methane, water recycling, and um, incidents, you're focusing as, you know, on S and G, not just the E. Um, yeah. So I think that that's good. But that kind of begs the question, and I do want to get into, you know, the numbers of your operations and stuff, which, which I have here, because uh, I am a nerd and I and pulled them up. Um, but uh, well, I'm going to rewind for just one second because um, Ryan is actually, he has, a, you know, he has a background in banking and reservoir engineering. So you have a little bit of a unique background for, for a CEO, which I thought was very cool about with uh, Jefferies and different energy investment banking or energy investment banking at Jefferies reservoir um, background. And now the, now the CEO of Triple Crown and Triple Crown has backing by, you know, Yorktown partners. Um, that, that The reason I, I bring that up is because that uh, you talk about where you go next with the business, right? And you guys have about forty thousand acres. Um, you, I think you said your the acquisition was in. Um, you started the business in twenty seventeen, and then really started get acquired the assets in twenty eighteen. So you've been you've been at this since twenty seventeen with the company, right? Yes. yes okay. It, so twenty seventeen, exactly. and then if if I'm looking at your well profile from twenty seventeen to now, I mean, you guys did have the big bump in twenty nineteen with twenty wells. Um, and then you drop down to 10 wells in 2020 and you have 11 wells on the books right now for 2021 through Inveris. Um, and you, the well performance for 2021 does look really good. I mean, you significantly outperformed. I was normalizing and everything thing, you know, the wells look really good. Um, so, I mean, I guess just before we get into the numbers and the nerdiness with that, I'm curious as to, you know, 40,000 acres, the wells look good. I think it's 177 wells I'm seeing on the books about, um, what, uh, 8,000 barrels of oil a day, 16,000 barrel of oil equivalent per day. I mean, you're, and you're, you know, in the Southern part of the Midland, I mean, off the radar, it seems like a nice, like this, this is a good little, this is a great little asset. Yes, it, it, it is. And I don't and, mean um, to say little in a demeaning way. Uh, no, it, it, I mean, look, you, you, you've hosted, uh, you know, the next you know, previous weeks, next couple of weeks, you Talking to some companies who are a whole lot bigger, so you know, relatively speaking, we 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 are small, um, but you know, we 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 love our, our little um, 
our, you know, our little neighborhood, uh, you know, Southern Midland Basin is, um, you know, said this before, but it, it's kind of the, uh, the, the, the ghetto of the Permian. Um, <laughs> it just, a, a lot of folks have, you know, really poor, um, you know, poor impression of, of, uh, you know, the, the drilling economics in, in the Southern Midland. It's, it's just the ground zero for the, the, the bubble point death, uh, um, you know, all that stuff from, from a few years ago. So, um, you know, we, we weren't scared of it. It's not all homogenous. I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, uh, 1.5 million acres in the Southern Midland Basin, you know, d- depending on where you, you, you draw the line. So it's, um, it, our wells don't look like Midland County or Eddie or Lee County. Um, they, and that's okay. Like it, it's, it's, it's shallower. Um, it's a, a little bit more gassy and, and, and these things turn a lot of people off, but it's also a lot cheaper to operate. Okay, if it's um, a lot, if you're and, a lower well cost, about range, what depth and like what formation are you in? It's, primarily? uh, it's predominantly wolf camp. Uh, yeah, we, we, we have, um, you know, just a, a huge, you know, the, the, everyone in the, in the Permian does, but, uh, you know, the, the top of the wolf camp a to the bottom of the sea is, is, um, you know, about a thousand feet. So, um, uh, we, we have uh, two primary targets and, and, you know, depending on where we are, you know, three other, three other targets, but uh, you know, like you mentioned, you know, with, with well spacing um, we, we don't want to get, we don't want to get too tight. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, same, same with, um, you know, uh, a lot of other operators have been uh, moving to in the last, uh, last three years or so um, and just, just capital efficiency. Um, you know, we can sacrifice some, some inventory in the, on the, off the back end of the, uh, you know, if the drilling order, if it's theoretically happens, happens 10 years out to improve our capital efficiency right now. And that's, um, we're doing it for the same reason everyone else is. Um, so yes, we, we, we have less inventory than we did per, per section or, or, you know, per unit. Um, but it's but not, it's, not it's, that it's, much, and, not that much else. I mean, we were talking offline before, um, cause I was just looking at that significant well performance increase that was normalized and it was great for 2021. Um, and seeing that, you know, there was a little upspacing there and not, not, ma- not massive upspacing. I mean, it wasn't, some of it seems a little bit more than others. Uh, and there you looked like you were doing, um, kind of some, some testing with the spacing when I was looking at these, um, at these laterals, um, on Inverus. But I mean, I, it, I, I kind of would push people. I was one. No, I you were seeing this performance bump, you know, with these this the spacing. We definitely saw it. And no public companies don't really want to talk about the nerdy stuff anymore. You know, they don't want to talk about the spacing. But I mean, if you're going from you know six hundred foot to nine hundred foot, you're losing. You know, I, I'm more of at, would advocate more for something slicing the difference or or taking two hundred instead of three hundred foot. And it seems like in some areas you're doing that. Is that are you guys settled on the nerd s- side of the business? I mean, I. I think the in my previous podcast with Conoco Phillips, we we talked about the all these good things about the Midland, and we didn't talk about obviously the Southern Midland, but the Midland Basin has a lot to offer, and that it is more delineated, it is well understood, it is shallower, it is easy to drill. It's all the reasons sort of it was quite resilient in the last couple of years, um, and I would say even where you're at, I I love the you know I would love where you're at, and people are not looking, and and you sort of have you can play around in the space because other people don't like it. Um, but I would love from the nerd perspective of, you know, the spacing and stuff, are you guys settled? Like, this is what we're going to do. This is it. We have a cookie cutter completion design and we're just going to go for it. Or given the fact that, you know, and your actually your liquids has kind of seemed up and down. So, I mean, given all that, it seems like you probably would still be tinkering a little bit. Yes. And, and, you know, we're, we're, um, the, 
the spacing, uh, you know, all else equal, kind of should be a function of of your of commodity price. You know, what what are your what are your financial goals? Um, you know, back in uh, you know 2019, you, you mentioned we, you know, we were a little tighter. You know, our wells were paying out in you know a little over a year. Um, you know, and fast forward to, to today, it's it's less than that. Um, and uh, you know, this we have to also factor in the uh, you know the, the service cost inflation that that we previously discussed, but um, we're 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 erring on the side of of uh, of um, you know a little bit looser in, in, in maximizing that capital efficiency. We 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 love beating production guidance, um, uh, just like everyone else does. So uh, you know, underwrite a, a you know a pretty conservative type curve, and then uh, if you have conservative spacing, you're, you're probably going to beat it. Um, and and that's that's what we've been. Um, yeah, and you do see that last. in your your first three month and first six month. Uh, significantly. So, I mean, that it went down from 2017 and then consistently back up and way up in, in 2021. So, I mean, I can see the logic in it. Um, it it's always sad to me when I'm like, the wells are, you know, I, I was that, that tight well spacing and then the, the well's been gone. But I also think, I, I think probably people don't really appreciate that. Um, you know, I guess we could call it real oil prices, but what is your real price after inflation? Um, and if you're paying a little bit more than other, you know, what, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's important to realize that. So yeah, $90 oil, in theory, you could have tighter well spacing, but actually you may not want to, um, given all the cost inflation and given how quickly you want that payoff um, and what you, really your what are the metrics of your business and, and what, what do you, what are your success points that you're trying to hit? Um, and I think that's different for a lot of, for, that is different for every operator. Or can it be is. different for every operator. It 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 certainly is, and um, you know we we were we bought uh, our entrance into the basin was of, of intermediate maturity, and then this was in early 2018 when not very many things in the Permian Basin were were very mature. Uh, you know, well delineated, good infrastructure, and um, the 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 business model was, and uh, you know at at our founding, uh, uh, you know, live live within cash flow, uh, you know, pay down debt and. Um, you know, it, it was a, a lower risk equity value proposition. Um, and it still is. So, uh, we, we've had that model for four years. Um, and that's, that's precisely it. I mean, you know, keep, keep our reinvestment rate, uh, you know, as low as possible. Um, you know, that 2019, we, we grew production over 2018. We, it's mostly because we, we had a lull in activity in 2018. That, that's when we were, you know, wrapping our, our, um, our arms are, and uh, and heads around around what we just acquired and digesting it, so we, we didn't get out of the gate uh, blowing and going or anything. So, um, twenty nineteen did, did have um, uh, yeah, quite a you know, good amount of development. Twenty twenty before COVID, it was going to be uh, you know like a, a much lower reinvestment rate, create that nice production base and and um, and, and generate a lot of free cash flow, and then and then COVID hit, um, yeah, and. And that that uh, that obviously changed things. We we did live within cash flow that year. You mentioned uh, ten wells, and I know you want to talk about this. But we had a good hedge book, a very good hedge book. And we're, we, we so in twenty twenty you were in twenty twenty you were decently hedged. Yes. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, I and, that's a game changing factor for. You know, I was I was just talking with a couple folks, uh, you know, different companies the other day, and that I, that is is a really big deal. I brought it up in the context of where oil prices are at now. Um, and, and the confidence I'm hearing from all these CEOs, and I certainly heard that same confidence at the beginning of, of January 2020. I think I even spoke at a Doug conference, and I think I told them, "Hey, y'all thought oil prices were going to 80 because we saw 60, and and when we see, you know, when we see 50, you think they're going to 40." And obviously, it did. They did go to 40 and lower, but I think people aren't really 
probably didn't really appreciate that many people that should have should have understood in January 2020 that the the strength in oil prices was not from demand. It was from supply shocks, which weren't actually real. They were just sort of fear driven. And I think right now we're certainly seeing um, we're certainly seeing some of these fears from the geopolitics side. So but I think it's the the clarity that people have when they see these numbers of sort of what you did during the downturn and everything. And the fact that the fact that you even did 10 wells in 2020, that's fantastic. So having good hedge book um, and being in a good position that probably also put you in a great relationship with your, your private equity backers and just the ability to keep things humming um, and not shut everything down and freak out. Exactly. Um, and th- there are a lot of opinions on, on hedging and, and what it's for when you hedge, how much, and um, it, it just depends um, on, you know, on one's goal, and th- there are a lot of companies. You know, usually, uh, you know, small cap uh, oil and gas companies whose whose investors uh, primarily are are um, are investors who want a levered play on oil price, and that's the easiest way to do it. Go buy an oil company. That's it, you get higher beta. Um, on on the you know the price movement in the oil company than you do on on oil itself often although that seemed to have disconnected in the last uh, last couple of months and, and we can get into that too um, it, yeah really interesting dynamic there but we, we we're in this to make money our investors are in this to make cash on cash returns um, so we we underwrite projects um, we we know what our wells cost we know within a pretty pretty uh, tight window what they're going to produce. The last variable there is is price. What do we get? And when once we reach final investment decision on, you know, planning, planning a well uh, or, or, you know, a pad, uh, you know, four to six well pad, uh, we, we hedge uh, the production in before uh, they're even producing uh, or at least a percentage of it. And, um, you know what that does is you know right now that that means our our hedges are are underwater. It's like okay, well, well, um, it, it, if you're if you're you know playing uh, you know Monday morning quarterback, you can say like, oh god, you shouldn't have done that. It's like okay, well, that's exactly what we did in February of 2020, and it it kept us very comfortable during the worst oil price crash in history. It's uh, you know we we when we're spending capital, it's not our capital. We want to guarantee a return on that capital, and and so when we like the prices, we just hedge, uh, take that variable, just just get rid of it, um, and 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 lock it in to the extent that we can. Um, so that that's that's how we'll be um, uh, for the for the foreseeable future. Uh, I think that's a extremely honest, and I uh, I really appreciate the color on that, especially for the listeners, because um, you know I. I think hedging is a it's a it's a unique thing, as you say, and a lot of folks do it for different reasons. Um, and that, that there should be some very clear reasons in which you do it. Lots of individual CEOs hedge, you know. Just I mean, everybody has a different wonky strategy on how they feel about hedging, how they don't. Um, you know, Harold Ham was famous for for selling off his hedges uh, when he shouldn't have in 2014. Um, you know, and having very strong and those those hedges are often related to very our macro views, right? I mean, macro views. And this is where I, you know, I do really pitch a lot of companies on, on what my services and what I do in advising. And, and that those macro views really do matter because they do funnel into your business decisions. And so you guys seem to have a, you know, as a private company, you sort of have a unique position and that you, you have that sort of sorted. Um, that's why I was pushing a little bit on, on how you guys think about the macro, but if you can have a backer, that's okay. Saying, okay, you hedge at this. Yes, you might be underwater, but I'm getting this return. So I can, 
be steady, it also takes a massive amount of anxiety in just the day-to-day business. And I mean, I imagine it's it's hard because you do have these inflationary pressures, which I think are extremely real. So, you know, making sure your costs are in line. I mean, you can you can hedge out oil prices and you know that, but you you can't control the inflationary aspects. And especially if you're you don't have the labor or the people and you have these offsets or if something takes longer, that's all problematic. Um, but the ability to be hedged and to not have a monkey on your back from a private equity player constantly asking and, and beating the drum. I, I think a lot of companies were, you know, we don't hear from a lot of private, you know, private companies, so we won't hear that. But m- my understanding is that that uh, they're, that monkey was very, very, you know, in addition to the ESG monkey now, the, the private equity monkey on the back of all these guys and making them hedge at a forehandle was crazy and ridiculous. And, and frankly, it was it, it was just wrong to, to, to make companies hedge at a forehandle. Um, but I mean, that's 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 the reality. And so for you guys to be able to, even if you're underwater on your hedges, and, and we can talk about the gas side, um, I, if you're comfortable drilling at the level you're drilling and completing and, you know, your backers are with you, I, I think that goes a long way in terms of just the steadiness and the ability to do business. And that also has a meaningful role of other private companies are doing that. It means that the private operators are not going to be quite as volatile or, or drop like a stone, you know, if prices were to drop 10, 20, 30 bucks. Yeah, it, 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 exactly. Um, yeah, there, there's a, a um, it, it, it really allowed us to drill our, our hedge settlements in, in 2020. It, it, it funded you know, part of our development because we knew we were coming back out of it. Um, we didn't know when, but uh you know, at that point, service costs had gone down and it was like, OK, look, we can we can actually make money here at, at uh, uh, our, our wells have a reasonable return at you know, thirty five, forty dollars a barrel. It's OK, well, let's let's go ahead and do this. Um, you know, at that point, we had uh, we, we had we had some other other um, uh, input about uh, how much uh, we should be hedging. So <laughs> yeah, at that sure. point, uh, that, that was really the uh, fall of 2020 was probably the worst of it as far as the capital markets went. Um, yeah, the banks really just fling the sector, you, you know, the, you know, the that's where I think banks. that is that is that really with the height of that push of the 40, the four handle stuff of the when the banks are fleeing and everybody's just trying to secure everything. And, you know, it's a bit bananaville and everybody running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And yes. Uh, and, you know, they, they have to protect their investment, too. And I under, understand where, where they were coming from. There is also this uh, it depends on depending on the company where. If you force your your business, if if you you know uh, lend an oil and gas company money, and there are a few of these that happened in June and July when we were in the twenties, okay, you you force companies to to hedge in the twenties, you're basically guaranteeing Chapter Eleven at some point. Yeah. Whereas if they did not hedge, at least they'd have a chance to get out of it. Right. So it like that really didn't make any sense. But no, and that that, at that, that point, it's beyond. So why? <laughs> The, it, beyond it didn't make sense. And the four handles didn't. I, I mean, I always hear from certain private equity guys. I think Chuck Gates has mentioned it to me too. Like the, you know, but we had to do this and and it's all about, you know, private equity doesn't make money the way people think they make money and, and all these things. But it's still, it's like I could pull and I did, I did it for clients. I did it for folks I was working with, but it was a just a U.S. supply and demand chart, product supplied. Like you can, you can put prices next to U.S. supply and demand and it was very simple. It could not stay in the 40s. The, 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 the demand levels were not sustainable and the gasoline demand was, inc- was rising up. Now, I do believe that the banks, 
and private equity were heavily influenced by people who didn't understand the oil market. Um, and I dealt with a lot of those people who were in the oil market and still believe they knew everything. And they would say, jet fuel will never, demand will never come back. It just, it can never return to pre-COVID levels because we fundamentally altered, you know, the economy. And I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous because we're, we're offsetting as we speak and people's behaviors change. Well, we debunked that theory incredibly in the U.S. because everyone drove like crazy. And we had, you know, record gasoline demand on July 4th of this year at over 10 million barrels per day. And December of this year, we had 23 million barrels a day of demand in the U.S. And those are record high levels. So we more than offset it without going back to international travel to Asia with having, you know, and we're, we're nearing these pre-COVID levels of demand. So it's just it was a narrow view um, that reminded me a lot of sort of 2014 when people, into, when we we're coming out of and talking about inventory levels and shortfalls of investment and then production pops again, you know, it reminded me of sort of that, that just, it was a very, very narrow thinking of, of the people just can't adapt and that, that demand wouldn't go up. And so I wonder if that had a lot to do in influencing how people were, you know, hell bent on the forties, in addition to just trying to save face or whatever, the twenties doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. And th those, um, you know, when, when you have a, a strong opinion that begins with either always or never or some absolute, that's just an, usually an immediate like, ooh, I don't, mm. <laughs> when yes. something that's rigid, black or white, like, I mm, don't think I'm going to, I'm going to really uh, uh, follow that um, or agree with it completely. Um, no, I, I, yeah, I agree with that. Um, and that, um, that, Hedging at, at at forty, and you know what? Yeah, this is October, November, and that was right around the the point of uh, bank redeterminations. And banks had a yes. lot of leverage then, yep. capital fleeing the industry. Uh, it's a lot of that still hasn't come back, and it'll come back when we start on uh, mass generating the uh, types of returns that we've that we've promised, um, and and that that we're showing we can we can deliver right now, but. Uh, yeah, right now, they, yeah, there's still a capital shortage. There, there's no shortage of good locations or, or um, uh, you know, good good assets. But uh, we, we have a capital shortage, and then before mentioned people shortage. But um, you know, so th they had leverage. Uh, uh, banks had leverage uh, if you're in the space, and, and and still do on getting the terms that, at a bare minimum, they think protect them, protect their investment. And, even if they're, um, even if they're wrong. And they I, is... Right. And they, and I think those banks, and I want to, I want to interrupt you because I want to ask, I want to get into this, the access to capital and the sort of the, where things go. So you brought up a really good point um, and I just don't want to lose it, but you're the sort of access to capital. Cause I get a lot of people asking me um, and talking about what you do, does the business, you know, the last two years, that's what the doomsayers would say from from abroad, from the Middle East, you know, in London and stuff was that, you know, the access to capital is just going to dry up. And frankly, they've actually been saying this for for several years that you just wouldn't have the access to capital. And you could see things like uh, Haynes and Boone does their surveys and you would see that, uh, you know, this new category would pop up and it would say they would do a survey of 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 where folks would be getting their money and it would be like public space, you know, obviously that went down to nothing and then it would be uh, from operations. So companies were actually making enough money that they could source their capital from the actual operations. And then a new category popped up and it wasn't private equity, it was private capital. And um, I think that private capital, and I think it's very, you know, probably more Permian centric, um, but I think that private capital and that um, 
is interesting to me because I think people, some private money is able to look through the always and never and a lot of the BS that's frankly in the market of people just saying, this is how it is. Um, and they can look through it and say, yeah, I'm betting on oil and gas in the future, which I'd bet my money all day long on um, because that's that's where it it will still be there. We will still be using it. And so I'm, I'm curious on, on your thoughts on the access to capital. And I know you, you don't have to speak at it from your perspective uh, backed by Yorktown and stuff, but I mean, it, you're, you are a private player and people People do ask a lot, are these private players going to have the access to capital to drill? And, and I think at that Doug conference, you know, we were at and everybody at my table who probably wanted to kill me because I was arguing with all the, the gentlemen quite a bit at the speaker's dinner. Um, you know, I, I, there was a theme that was was trending and this was what that was May of last year. That was July of last year at the Doug Permian Conference, Heart Energies Conference. And I would say mm-hmm. that, you know, everybody was running around and crazy and excited and people were together. And there's 3,000 people at that conference. It was great. But th- they all said the sort of same thing to me. Every CEO was saying the same thing, which was, you know, we raised the money and we're drilling and we're going to be great. But um, we're going to be the only ones and we're not going to have enough product. You know, production is going to fall short. And I thought, well, you're all here and you're all doing this and you got Fraxan guys, you know, Fraxan booths back. So the business seems to be back in in earnest. And um, I just noticed that it did. It seemed like they were able to access that capital. Might not have been as easy. And certainly now, when we're seeing the rig count growth with the privates and just the sheer activity of privates, the access to capital seems to be there. And I'm curious of your thoughts of that. You know, wh- what role ESG plays in that and things like that. But um, it. it you're, you're getting it. Whether some of them were forced and just don't know how to leave might be a factor of it, but the growth isn't isn't that. The growth in it, it there's more to it than that. The actual, you know, up ramp in, in private operators across the U.S. dominating the publics, there's something to that. I mean, it's oil prices, but it's they're able to get the capital, it looks like. Yes, and it, it there seems with the consolidation, especially the, the bigger, more established privates, um, there's a, there's a, Bifurcation there and a you know, bimodal distribution. Um, they're the you know smaller, smaller you know companies. Um, you know a lot of which are you know might not have ever been able to generate the scale. You know maybe great assets, great people, but just for whatever reasons couldn't get to that scale. Um, so that's still prevalent, uh, both both public and and private. That there's just a critical mass, uh, and just having you know some track record of of um, of you know being able to uh, being a competent operator um, you know at, at at a critical mass to to attract investment um, so the, the scale is is still very much a, a factor and you know at the, we started off talking about some some ESG stuff and and um, you know that is that's important up to a point for a lot of investors um, there are some pragmatists. In, in our in our country who are probably staying away from oil and gas maybe it's because of a poor history of returns and not not as much as the you know narrative that um, you know, that you know the, the negative environmental narrative uh, whether that's well deserved or not um, but they might be sitting on the sideline just waiting uh, for you know something like okay here's some companies if if American and Canadian oil and gas companies can prove, uh, you know, we're, we're lowering methane emissions. Our carbon emissions are going down. Scope one and scope two. Um, we're recycling a lot of water. Uh, we're doing things sustainably, and we're delivering, you know, free cash flow and returns. That ma- there's a massive middle ground there who's going to just 
whether it's individuals or institutions, that it is going to pile back in Absolutely. into oil and gas. It seems to be happening some right now. You're seeing some signs of that in the bigger companies. Um, but that, that bifurcation still exists. If you look at um, uh, multiples, you know, trading multiples, whether it's cash flow or, or free cash flow yield or, or you know, whatever it is, uh, there's, there's a point at which it just scale gets you another turn, another full term on your EBITDA multiple. Um, and based on our analysis, it's somewhere around $10 billion. Yeah, that, that's not, you know, enterprise value. Um, and, and that seems to be a big enough, safe enough for the, the, the institutions and the individuals who want to rotate back in and invest in equities. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's only part of it. The, the debt, uh, is, is also interesting. Yes. Um, this is, uh, the, the commercial banks, the, uh, the big ones whose names we, we all recognize, um, you know, you have branches on every corner. Um, they, you know, they pulled out, they've de decreased their exposure and probably overshot their goal. Um, there's, you know, a few of them want to actually put money back to work. Um, and, but the type of credit profile that's being funded right now with bank debt is so much more strict right now than it was three or four years ago. And there still is not enough of that to go around to, uh, with perfectly financially healthy companies. Uh, so private capital has filled that space a little bit. Um, a lot of folks are, are going a lot more to the high yield market. Um, but that, again, needs scale. Uh, you, you need scale to do that. You know, the minimum high yield debt investment, it's going to be about three or four hundred million dollars. Um, you've got to generate a lot of cash flow uh, to ha have the leverage profile that those investors are going to like. Uh, so, again, it's just it's it's this scale theme um, that if anything, in the last month is just, it, it's at an all time high, this bifurcation of, of big versus small. Um, well, and so, I love the, I love the bifurcation because I use the word a lot when I'm talking about the public privates and I think, and you have to break out the publics and you have to break out the end, you know, the bigger independents and the smaller independents. And you have to, you have to chunk everything up to really look at them. And, um, and this is where I actually, I really do think that the, the OPEC is probably going to miss um, is really going to miss what's going on here. Uh, people are already missing it. Uh, real good analysts on the oil market are truly not understanding what's happening um, in the U.S. right now. They, they don't understand what you're doing, how resilient you've been. They don't understand all the stuff we've talked about. They will once they listen to the podcast. But um, that being said, it's it's pretty it's serious because I think that um, there's this sort of resiliency. I do think you're right that money is. It has a reason to come back. And there is a story and it may not be globally. I don't think it's globally, uh, but in the U S and Canada in particular, I think you're right. Is that, you know, there is a story for equities, um, you know, to come back to oil and gas from the inflationary piece, just the strength of oil price. I actually think gas prices are, are very relevant in this too. Um, the strength of the gas market and the fact that, you know, gas demand is only globally will only go one direction up. And people say that it's, it won't, you know, if you're following the International Energy Agency or others, but the reality is it's going to have to. Um, it, it simply will. So gas and the ability to, to, we will have to increase exports out of the US. Exports will have to be increased out of Canada. And the narrative and the policies sort of look like it can't be done. But policies are not... It, they may seem stagnant in Europe, but they are not stagnant in the U.S. And I remind listeners all the time that we were not in the Paris Climate Accords until January of 2021. 
And we did not have an executive order on climate change until January of 2021. So if you think that this can't, this stuff can't be reversed, I know people don't want to hear it um, because it may not feel comfortable, but it can be reversed. Um, and I think that uh, the November elections um, could reverse some of it, at least the the sort of tailwinds behind a lot of the the ESG green stuff. I think some of those tailwinds could be taken, the wind could be taken out of the sails a little bit um, in the midterms. And then frankly, it's, it's, it's up for grabs um, in the next election cycle. And it does seem like even regardless of all that, there's sort of a shift saying, where can we make money? And to your point, if, if everything's not high, I'm hoping that the business is, is, you know, we're not seeing massive high yield of, of people getting the money there. But in many ways, it could be a bit like the housing sector, which did become more resilient on the back of crises, and that the folks that emerge from it are in a healthier position. And that if you are getting capital, it's stricter capital from banks and stuff. So in that's where I think people can sort of miss the resiliency of, yeah, oil prices could drop. I mean, oil prices are too high, as we talked about in the beginning now. So could they drop 20 bucks and and everything wouldn't crater? I think the reality is in the, in the, in the US, yeah, they they could. Um, and we'll have to really navigate the next six months. But I just think those are exceptionally valid points that are not, um, they're, they're not well thought about, um, especially by a lot of the leaders in the space. Oh, sure. Yeah, that that was that was a lot of uh, a lot of strung together thoughts. But yeah, that, yeah well, well said. Um, yeah, uh, the yeah, I mean, one of the reasons we're at $88 a barrel or 89 today is because um, you know, of, of these, the, the, the lack of capital for, for a couple of years, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a commodity. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's, uh, and the, the most valuable commodity right now, uh, in oil and gas is the capital directed to oil and gas. And, uh, yeah, we probably, that that's overshot. There was probably too much capital chasing, uh, both in the private, private equity and, and in the public markets, inflating valuations, um, you know, up through the end of 2019. Uh, there is probably too much capital and 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 too much obviously too much growth. So I I you know, that's not uh, we have what 150 years of uh, of history in, in oil and gas markets uh, or in the oil market and um, I don't think that's gonna don't, don't think we'll ever hit that middle ground that, that we're all yearning for. So um, um, you know we, it's it is best to be flexible. Well, those are those are fantastic comments. So we're hitting the one hour mark. I think we've given the listeners a, a wealth of information. You've uh, tons of insight. I think a couple things. I think I want to close with just the recapping is you know we've we've talked about inflation. You know you've really mentioned that it is very significant in the space. I, I think that that's. Uh, we're going to have to watch that play out over the course of the next few months to see where that really goes, both from, a, um, I think, a labor perspective. Um, the skills piece that you mentioned, I think, is huge of the ability to get the right people in there. And if that eats into efficiencies, because I do think, you know, longer laterals, um, faster drilling times, faster, which was critical getting, you know, the right drillers on on these rigs and everything, um, faster drilling times and uh, and, you know, being able to to drill faster wells, you know, say in the Delaware, maybe different, you know, in the Midland, but this all incrementally adds up. And these efficiencies have been huge over the past couple of years. So if we start seeing that erode, that's problematic. Um, I think the resilient, you know, folks sort of 
we get we hear the ESG thing a ton. You know, we hear people beat the drum and stuff. But I I feel like I, I wouldn't say it's flipping by any means, but I do think it's a different story with some private operators. And you know, I I am you know really pushing folks in the space to really be leaders in the space um, and own what they're doing um, and and not treat it like tobacco um, and realize that you are producing oil, natural gas, um, and you know, frankly, for that matter, coal. That this is really important for energy and um, and understanding the energy crisis in Europe and stuff. Like we're we're we now have the administration talking about, you know, ramping up exports to Europe um, and various means of, of what we can do. And that probably will continue um, all the geopolitics aside. And, and I don't think the geopolitics stuff is going away anytime soon. And then I think lastly, I mean, you're just pointing to sort of the result, you know, some of the resiliency in the space of, of capital may be flowing back. Investors may be, may be flowing back. Um, and I think, but we started this podcast with, uh, we started it talking about oil prices might being a little too hot um, and what's causing that, that oil price, you know, the strength in those oil prices and potential recession. So I'm not quite sure we're giving our listeners a, you know, a clear cut answer or whether or not they're um, it, or a rosy, a rosy picture to go in with. But I, um, if you have any last thoughts, you're, you're more than welcome. The, the floor is yours. Yeah. I mean, ESG said about um, there's some things we, we, we should adopt and, and start contributing to the narrative and start pulling things off. And, you know, that um, a lot of these that the, you know, the, I don't want to call it a bubble, but just this movement, the ESG movement, it's been so forceful. It's, it's it, probably the theme of 2021 and probably this year as well. Um, and, you know, being so there's a lot of unintended consequences that are going to happen uh, as a result of that uh, with just the sheer force and movement, um, you know, things happening, uh, you know, too fast and you know, markets can't can't adjust. So um, but that, that should not stop us from from being pragmatic about the things that actually do make sense. And you know, I mentioned a few of them. It's, uh, you know, minimizing flaring and our methane intensity, increase our water recycling, uh, minimizing the, the uh, you know, the, the seismic activity induced by saltwater disposal wells, you know, the things of that nature. We can do that stuff. We, this is stuff we can do and we can, we can do it profitably. Um, and that ultimately will, will attract that, that nice big middle ground, that big investor group, institutional capital and, and investors, um, you know, back into the space and, and, you know, we we have to own own part of that narrative though, and and then demonstrate it and and uh, and deliver on our, our returns and promises. I think uh, that's know, uh, sorry. Uh, I think I think that's fantastic. That really fantastic. Closing with a ESG and um, um, agreeing with me at least that the energy transition doesn't seem to be much of a transition, but a, a just um, a movement to there. So I think that's fair because I rip on I rip on the ESG thing a lot, and I think that um, especially private operators and, and framing in that way of of reducing methane of you know, actually reducing incidents, being safe, all these things really matter. And that's the piece that, that people have to educate people on this. It is not just the E there are these S and these G components. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was 2021 was the year it sort of ramped up and it was this, it was a movement. Um, and it still hasn't been, at least from a public space. And I would say even from a private space, metrics have not been set of, you just got to go hit this and then go do it. And so I think I, I put a lot of caution for investors and for public companies to say, be really careful about how much you are allowing that monkey on your back to dictate everything that you do. Because just like when they told you to get into the Permian, any and all costs, you maybe shouldn't have done it for $60,000 an acre. And you might not want to be, you know, 
know, going into wind and solar, um, hell or high water, when you know you're not going to get a return and you know that investor sentiment changes. And I think the ability for the industry to really own the space on ESG and say, we are doing these things. And by the way, when you need our gas, which you will, and which we export 12 BCF a day, we can promise you that it's, it's we, we know because it's not coming from Russia. We know the ESG footprint. We actually know the carbon footprint of the gas. And we know that um, it's being produced in a humane manner. You can't say that about Russian gas. You can't. And I have to mention the the last thing on China, because I did see that the province of Xinjiang, Sinopec, um, and my listeners know that I'm, I harp on the Xinjiang issue pretty big with uh, human rights abuses and genocide in Xinjiang and China, but Sinopec has said they've increased, uh, they're going to increase output in the province of Xinjiang. So we know that that, that just should ring alarm bells for everyone. Um, the oil and gas output is going to increase from uh, an area with a province with, with lots of human rights abuses. So I do think that the you know, knowing where the barrel's coming from and um, having an S&G component on these barrels and, and these uh, molecules of gas is really huge to say we know where it's produced and we can actually control these components. And right now, people may say it's, it's more about the carbon. And I, I know they say that. Um, I think that the proof's in the pudding that 2021 is going to have a massive uptake in, in carbon output because of all this fuel, you know, the, the gas to oil switching and the power plants and everything and 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 actually the increase in, in coal usage because of high gas prices. So I think it's just becoming an increasing reality of um, the system is breaking down before it's even started and that uh, energy security and reliability is huge um, and that if the goal is CO2, you're going the opposite direction. So um, that might be that's a that's a whole nother debate. But the reality is, is that, you know, leaders in the space in the U.S., are going to have a huge role to play. And I am, um, you know, honored to have you on the podcast and really, you know, happy that you are a, um, an incredible leader in the private space and, and willing to say this stuff out loud, I think is, is huge for the industry. All right. Yep. Yeah, appreciate it. And uh, yeah, th- thank you as, as, as usual. I appreciate the insight and the, and, and the platform. Really enjoy your show. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much and uh, appreciate it. And we will say, uh, see you all next time. And I'm not sure exactly when this will drop, but you are sort of sitting in the middle between Conoco Phillips and Matt Gallagher. So there will be a ton of information on the Permian and um, look forward to talking to you all soon, guys. Bye. All right. Happy Groundhog Day. (laughs) 